3: In London, this is The Economist, with a special festive edition of Tasting Menu, a turkey-tastic collection of stories from this week's Christmas double issue. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, what the Norman Conquest did for England's economy, the difficulties with silence, and how Mario became the world's most beloved character. But first, the future of liberalism, how to make sense of 2016, was our cover line. Britain voted to leave the European Union. Donald Trump has been confirmed as America's next president. The established political order is under threat from populist politicians left and right. Liberal values are on the back foot, but the struggle for ideas must and can be won. Our cover leader explained.
2: For a certain kind of liberal, 2016 stands as a rebuke. If you believe, as The Economist does in open economies and open societies, where the free exchange of goods, capital, people and ideas is encouraged, and where universal freedoms are protected from state abuse by the rule of law, then this has been a year of setbacks.
3: Many liberals have seesawed between denial and despair.
2: Some have written epitaphs for the liberal order and issued warnings about the threat to democracy. Others argue that, with a timid tweak to immigration law or an extra tariff, life will simply return to normal.
3: But rather than this defeatism, liberals should offer optimism, as they have in the past.
2: In the 19th century, as today, old ways were being upended by relentless technological, economic, social and political forces. People yearned for order and reformers provided universal education, a vast programme of public works and the first employment rights. Later, citizens got the vote, healthcare, and a safety net.
3: Yet despite liberalism's dominance in much of the West for the past quarter century, liberal ideas have become a bit lacklustre.
2: Nothing half so ambitious is coming from the West today. That must change. Liberals must explore the avenues that technology and social needs will open up.
3: So our message for liberals in the new year is to take up the challenge with gusto and vigour.
2: The bitter harvest of 2016 has not suddenly destroyed liberalism's claim to be the best way to confer dignity and bring about prosperity and equity. Rather than ducking the struggle of ideas, liberals should relish it.
3: This may have been a turbulent year for the world, but 950 years ago, England was having a transformative time too. The Norman Conquest kicked off in 1066, and its memory is still very much alive today. But while many still groan about the brutality of the invasion, it's worth noting that England's economy was reformed by its European overlords, and it ended up doing quite a lot of good.
2: The reasons for the invasion were complex. Early in 1066, Edward the Confessor, then King of England, had died heirless, sparking a crisis of succession. His brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, took over, but Harold's claim to the throne was weak and he faced resistance, especially in the north of the country. William, Duke of Normandy, just across the English Channel, reckoned that he was the rightful heir.
3: And so he did what any self-respecting medieval invader might do. He gathered together an army and sailed over. The result was bloody.
2: At the Battle of Hastings on the southern coast of England, Harold was killed and his body mutilated. One account describes how a Norman knight liquefied his entrails with a spear.
3: A similar attitude was taken to England's existing institutions.
2: The Anglo-Saxon system of government and economy was razed to the ground. The lands of over 4,000 English lords passed to fewer than 200 Norman and French barons,
3: And as with other economic shocks, property values took a tumble.
2: In Sussex, where William's army landed, wealth fell by 40% as the Normans sought to assert control by destroying capital. From Hastings to London, estates fell in value wherever the Normans marched.
3: But after wanton destruction came a dash of much-needed structural investment.
2: The Normans took some policy decisions that would meet with the approval of modern economists. At a time of radical uncertainty, they ramped up infrastructure spending.
3: And it paid off.
2: Total wealth actually increased. Real GDP growth in 1086 to 1300 was probably two to three times what it was in the pre-conquest period.
3: No pain, no gain, I suppose. So while one of our Christmas specials delved into the reforms the Normans brought to England, another dipped into the history of a British creation that continues to spread cheer around the planet, an authentically global beer, thirst quencher and conversational lubricant, the India Pale Ale.
0: In the 18th century... The British East India Company, originally set up to trade spices, turned its attention increasingly to importing fine cotton and silk from India.
3: Holds were stuffed to the brim on the journey home, but on the way out there was ample room. Thirsty
0: sailors eyed an opportunity. Boredom between the comings and goings of the ships led company men in India to make an art form of feasting and boozing.
3: Arguably still the world's favourite pastime.
0: To help this art form along... Wily entrepreneur seamen packed the holds with hams and cheeses, crockery and glassware, and good supplies of drink, mainly beer and wine, sometimes Madeira picked up en route.
3: Must have made for a jolly voyage then. As its flavour evolved, word of the liquid treasure spread, and soon everyone wanted a taste.
0: As IPA conquered taste buds in India, it spread around the world, turning up in America, Australia, and Southeast Asia. Its popularity spread in Britain as empire builders returning from India wanted to keep drinking it.
3: And who could blame them? Another of our specials explored the meteoric rise of a mustachioed tradesman, from small-time supporting character to global superstar. It's the story of how a rotund plumber from Brooklyn became one of the world's most loved characters.
0: His image appears on everything, not just T-shirts and mugs but solid gold pendants.
3: Not the Pope, no, but Nintendo's Mario. So ubiquitously popular, even politicians have been getting in on his success.
0: At the closing ceremony of the Rio Olympic Games, Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, made his grand entrance dressed as the chubby plumber. Some of the worldwide audience was doubtless bemused
3: but it was a huge boost for the statesman's
0: celebrity. Eating at a Singapore restaurant soon after, Mr Abe was recognised by fellow diners. Look, they whispered to each other, it's Mario.
3: Well, there's the kind of recognition any politician would kill for. Mario's unmistakable style was shaped by the technology of the time.
0: Some design decisions were dictated by the technical limitations of low-resolution displays, The hero got a bushy moustache so that there would be something separating his nose from his chin. He got a hat because hair presents problems when your character has to fit in a grid just 16 pixels on a side.
3: And his name? Well, he was originally called Jumpman, rather awkwardly, after his deft ability and remarkable stamina for the skill. But Minoru Arakawa, the boss of Nintendo in America, was searching for something a bit more marketable.
0: Mr Arakawa was visited at Nintendo's warehouse outside Seattle by an irate landlord demanding prompt payment. He was called Mario Segale, and he had a moustache. Thus does Destiny Call.
3: Mario's global success has been enjoyed by children of all ages – And our next story is also about a trend that proves kids don't have to have all the fun. Perhaps it's time to grab our crayons from the back of a drawer, or indeed from a child's hands, because adult colouring is back in vogue.
0: The adult colouring books of the 1960s owed their popularity to their countercultural captions rather than anyone's artistic aspirations. This is my suit. Read one popular publication. Colour it grey or I will lose my job. The Executive Colouring Book, published in 1961, was full of such sardonic comments about corporate life.
3: Yet in this recent vibrant comeback of the genre, this mocking tone has largely been rubbed out.
0: The emphasis now is on actually colouring in the elaborate designs and on the therapeutic benefits that come with it. Johanna Basford, an ink evangelist from Scotland, led the charge in 2013 with Secret Garden, and has sold more than 20 million copies of her nature-themed books worldwide. But
3: there are still some smudgy shades of the last generation.
0: Titles like Dinosaurs with Jobs and Unicorns are Jerks retain some of the spirit of the 1960s, and a crowded subgenre of books containing nothing but intricately designed swear words combines the stress-relieving joys of cursing and coloring.
3: A little blue indeed. If scribbling on profanities doesn't take the edge off the inevitable stresses of the festive period, why not try a little obligatory silence? The author of our next article took a brief hiatus from the relentless cerebral stimulation of modern life and The Economist, yet after a trip to a monastery to reflect in silence, he found the whole experience a little unnerving.
0: In the pre-dawn quiet of the monastery, it was as piercing as an air raid siren. Shortly before 4am, A monk struck two gongs, one about a second after the other. The monastery began to stir, soft footsteps and the rustling of clothes, no voices.
3: Profound silence seemed to be a mental oasis in a hectic world.
0: For someone whose working days are relentless blizzards of phone calls, emails, tweets and deadlines, and whose home life is filled with the constant screeching and breaking that only children at the demon puppy stage can provide— A week spent in silent meditation within the monastery's walls sounded heavenly. No demands, an inward focus, time to breathe and reflect.
3: But plunging into the silence proved more disconcerting than was
0: expected. Your correspondent's modern mind craved stimulation. The sought-after silence brought only soured boredom. This, say meditation enthusiasts, is just the first stage – You have to push through it to reach something worthwhile on the other side. It turned out to be easier said, or easier to recall in silence, someone else once saying, than done.
3: So to follow our writer's internal musings on the origins and importance of silence, and to find out whether he made it through the seven-day silent retreat, pick up a copy of the issue, available on newsstands now. A strange quiet will befall one building in central London in 2017, as after 52 years, The Economist says adieu to our current office. Our final taste of this week's issue is from an article bidding farewell to 25
1: St James's Street, an architectural masterpiece and a formative home. You can work in a building for years without really seeing it, and journalists who pride themselves on their acuity can be especially oblivious to their surroundings. We are a cynical bunch who refuse to be impressed by the grand offices of company bosses and politicians, so why should we pay attention to our own? Indeed, you sometimes don't realise what you've got until it's gone, so we've had a good long last look. In the technology editor's office... Two stickers depicting passenger jets attached lopsidedly to the window by a previous inhabitant of the room about 20 years ago, perhaps while tipsy. Probably while tipsy. In the business editor's office, a heap of notebooks on the floor. In the corridors... Modern art bought long ago, some of it good, all of it ignored. It's
3: an architectural tour de force, inside and out, and from what were then rather
1: inexperienced architects. When The Economist hired them, Peter and Alison Smithson had built a suburban house in Watford and a school in Norfolk, but nothing to indicate that they could handle a complicated project in one of London's most precious districts.
3: That they did, however and they brought an intriguing material
1: to help the building stand out. Most Portland stone comes from deep in the limestone beds that form the Isle of Portland in Dorset. It is creamy, smooth and excellent for carving. But towards the top of the beds lies a metre-thick layer of messy rock known as roach. In places, roach contains fragments of oyster shells. But from all the wonder that we see in the building... We're equally inspired by what we see outside of it. Those spectacular views from the upper floors are not just a pretty sight. Out of our windows, we see a vibrant metropolis full of cranes, which reassures us, as in a nostalgic populist era we need reassuring, that the free flow of capital and people are wonderful, enriching things. And
3: we hope, as we head to our new home next year, that it reassures you too. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our Christmas tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of these articles and more in this week's Double Issue. It includes a cryptic crossword and a colouring page to keep your brain busy over the festive period. Do keep sending in your feedback by emailing us, radio at economist.com, tweeting us or writing to us on Facebook. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Selling a little or a lot?